The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to turn our attention to Peanuts. (laughs) No, no, not the little cartoon characters, but uh, a new book um, by award-winning journalist Jory Lewis called Slaves for Peanuts. A story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. And uh, Jory Jones joins me by phone. Uh, good morning, Jory. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, how did your attention um, turn to peanuts? <laughs> well, um, I was, I was uh, living in, in Senegal where peanuts are still grown on a pretty large scale. So that's basically my sort of entree into the subject. I was um, studying, well, I was, you know, um, researching agriculture in the region, and uh, peanuts for, you know, 200 years have been this this sort of cash crop. Well, and, yeah, it's considered uh, really the motor of the Senegalese economy for more than a century, but how uh, how is how are peanuts a crop that changed history? Well, uh, changed history in West Africa because it um, well basically it it became a cash crop in the middle the middle of the century and kind of provided a kind of raison d'etre for the French to expand. Not that they, you know, not that they only needed that as as the as the excuse, but it became sort of one one point. If that makes sense. Well, you know, the about the only thing I know about peanuts, other than they go good with beer, is um, that. Uh, Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer. Who were the peanut farmers in Senegal? Yeah, that's right. The Jimmy Carter is sort of well known for his his. I think he had a quite large peanut farm, right? That did he did he sell it when he became president? I can't remember the whole story. Um, peanuts. Maybe it'd be helpful if I just sort of explain that um, you know peanuts actually come from from South America that's their their center of origin uh, and then they they uh, were taken to Africa probably sometime in like the 
the 16th century with um, you know Spanish and Portuguese uh, explorers, conquistadors, whatever we want to call them, um, and then it sort of took off in a like really diffuse way, right? So like you find peanuts a little bit everywhere on the continent because they're they're pretty easy to grow, they're tasty, they, they kind of entered a lot of niches in the um in sort of the the the, um, the diets of people. It was only in the middle of nineteenth century that they started to be grown on any large scale um in in, in Senegal and the surrounding areas so like what's now Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mali, these areas, but even, you know, further south also. Uh, and the farmers were, people were growing them basically um, just kind of like a, well, originally people were growing them in their sort of kitchen gardens, maybe along with like okra or uh, probably cowpeas and other things just to kind of complete their diets. Um, and so it's kind of like everybody's growing peanuts, you know, at that time, but on a really small scale. And then when it scaled up, um, you know, you you're put into a situation when people needed more labor, so there there came to be a kind of market for enslaved people to help grow more peanuts. If that makes sense. Well, but was there was there a time when all of a sudden there were I don't know, just just big peanut plantations that that there were peanut barons and you know we we think the same thing about coffee in South America that that it's grown by a lot of little small farms but there are some huge coffee operations. Yeah, that's true, but I would say that um at least uh, I'm not an expert on coffee. In places I've seen where coffee is grown, there's still a lot of smallholders and that are formed into collectives to kind of produce a larger set of crops. But anyway, but in the book I do talk about one area where um, a few uh, sort of there were plantations of peanuts being grown with, um, according to the reports of the day, several thousand um, enslaved people working on these plantations. But in general, um, there's sort of no um, huge advantage to growing peanuts at such a scale. And you don't see it that often, right? So even in, in, in slaves for peanuts, they're, they're still mostly growing on a pretty small scale. How? Um, although there are other areas where peanuts are grown on large plots, so like later... In northern Nigeria, that's that's a thing. I think also in Tanzania, so it does happen, but it's not it's not. There's really no like advantage to it. You know, we equate slavery so much with the United States, and and of course, cotton. Although they were used to grow tobacco and and other things, um, but how big? an operation was Slaves for Peanuts? How, I'm not exactly sure. So do you mean how big, I, is, I how guess, big is slavery in the area? 
Well, I guess what I'm asking is how common were slaves in other places? Because it's it's almost the way Americans look back at history. We're not very good with world geography to begin with. Um, but but it, it seems almost as if the United States was alone in the... Um, uh, importation of of slaves, or at least the largest importer of slaves, um, is is that true, or was slavery important to um, other economies around the world in a much bigger way than we remember? Yeah, I mean that's not yeah, it's not true. <laughs> I mean, I, even in the New World. Um, the United States was not the largest importer of enslaved people. I think, I think that dubious honor goes to Brazil, um, which I, I actually don't have the numbers. I don't, I'm not sure, but I mean, it's it's like on orders of magnitude larger in terms of in sort of importation of slaves. So that's like the New World experience of slavery, which is still very similar to to what happened. Uh, in the United States, or the United States sort of um, understanding of, of slavery. Now, slavery in other places, so like in, in Africa, which I can't, I cannot generalize for all of Africa, which is of course a continent with, you know, what, what is it now, several, over 50 countries. Um, but at least in the area of West Africa, I've been looking at, I mean, of course there's always been um, a kind of hierarchy of societies that included servitude, uh, that include in, included enslavement. The function of that enslavement um, is, is, is a, ha- tends to be slightly different than um, than the United States in the way that the way that it was sort of. Um, I guess for me, the the biggest difference tends to be um, how we think about. Um, how slavery continues to exist, so that in the United States mm, there were opportunities maybe for some enslaved people to to buy themselves out of slavery, but they were really rare, like it didn't happen so often. Whereas, say, like in most places in maybe West Africa, you have a system of slavery in which people might have had the opportunity to eventually like buy themselves out or to integrate into the larger society in a way that like may not have been available in the United States, for example, but might have been available to some differing degrees in other New World systems, right? So it's a little bit of a complicated and kind of nerdy conversation. Um, but um, yeah, the, the, sh- the sort of short answer to your question is that yes, slavery existed in many other places, but that um, I think that the way uh, America sort of put its like imprimatur on 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 slavery is 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 it's pretty specific. And okay. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, um, but it, were there was there a country or countries that were known for exporting slaves? Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's really, really super amazing research that's been done on um, the this thing called like the slave trade database, which is um, sort of 
uh, tracking the Atlantic slave trade. I don't know that there, I don't know if there's another sort of similar kind of database looking at, say, like the, the um, trans-Saharan slave trade. But at the, the, at the very least, the transatlantic slave trade database, um, you know, did a pretty, has done a pretty interesting job of, of, of looking at where, like, most people, most enslaved people were coming from. I think that, um, at least for my purposes, like writing this book, the Sine Gambia area was not one of those places. It tended to be, I think it's the um, sort of Congo, Angola area was the kind of largest sending region. And after that, probably like the, the Bite of Benin, which is like Nigeria, um, you know, Cameroon, uh, you know, been in Togo, that area. And and these were huge economic uh, engines for these areas. Uh, the transatlantic slave trade uh, would have been, yes. But I would say that my book doesn't so much talk about that. It's a, it's a kind of paradox. My, my book's not so much about the transatlantic slave trade. I do talk about the end of it the kind of tail end of, um, of the slave trade, especially as it relates to the, the settlement of Sierra Leone, uh, which is kind of the most sort of direct reason I sort of look into the transatlantic slave trade. My purpose in writing the book was to well, kind of show another sort of viewpoint, not just the transatlantic slave trade, but to understand um, understand this in a kind of larger, a larger context, a broader context. What were the things that, that you discovered in your research for the book that were the most surprising to you? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well, the book is, is, is quite, um, it's sort of a little bit sprawling, but at the same time geographically um, compact. I don't know. If that makes sense, <laughs> but it's you know I'm covering both like the story of peanuts uh, in 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 this part of West Africa, but also a kind of story of um, of, of colonialism in Senegal, and also this sort of personal story of this um, this this Protestant missionary from Sierra Leone. So I, the the research took me in so many different directions um, that. I don't know if I was surprised by any particular thing, but I kept getting sort of enmeshed in each particular um, sort of narrative string. Well, I want to talk about I want to talk about some of the different areas that that you went in, and also the relationship between slavery and colonization. Um, but let's um, I I need to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Yeah, no problem. My guest is award-winning journalist Jory Lewis. Her uh, new book is Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. If you're listening to us on WFOVLP, uh, our voice is Radio 92.1 FM in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Hearing. 
We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a 
have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, we continue my conversation with uh, award-winning journalist Jory Lewis about her new book, Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. Jory, uh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. Um, Jory, I, I mentioned before the break that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the connection between slavery and colonization. Um, as it pertains to your book, are those two things um, related in some way? And did you get the impression that that's true of um lots of places that were colonized, that, that slavery became a part of the uh, economic fabric of those colonies? Well, um, yeah, that's a, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, well, I think that the, there are a few different um, aspects sort of happening. One is that the sort of... Um, like the late 19th century, again, like as I mentioned, that that the you know the, the society sort of had a had a thing called had a thing called slavery, and that the the sort of um, increase in peanut agriculture provided a kind of uh, what's called like economic logic for for sort of the for continuing this type of this type of exploitative um, labor practice, right? Uh, but the, and you know, maybe this is also repeated in other areas, you know, namely like further, further to the south where there was, um, you know, wide scale like palm oil, palm oil plantations also at the same time for the same reasons. Um, but the conversation around Slavery um, is also it's very it's sort of it's a it's sort of complicated um, intersection between both um, the kind of uh, increased sort of uh, slavery and or like forced labor exploitative labor that's kind of becoming very common as as the colonialism sets in or formal colonialism sets in and the, the sort of um, European justification for its expansion in Africa becomes about how to stop slavery. So there's a there's a kind of paradox there. Was what how did the timing work for the this um, growth of, of peanut crops and demand around the world for peanuts and, uh, and the evolution of, of slavery connected to the harvesting of peanuts? How did the timing of the, of the evolution of 
of um, of slavery itself. Yeah, how, do, how did the a, growth of, of peanuts uh, impact the growth of, of slavery in that particular kind of farming? Did Was it something that happened at about the same time, or was it just simply that the growth of peanuts created a demand for more workers? Yeah, it's exactly it's exactly that. <laughs> yeah, the, um, there were probably already again there were already people people who were enslaved in these societies who, and there are also sort of systems of labor that are like happening at the same time that are kind of mm, that have aspects that kind of um, that involve like people not being paid, but that, anyway, they're, they're the kind of um, kinship based. Uh, labor practices, but then also also slaves or enslaved people. Uh, then, as the demand for um, more peanuts expanded and more land goes into production, there just aren't enough workers, right? Or there aren't enough laborers, and so there um, there comes to be an increased demand for slaves. So yeah, it's exactly that. Now this might sound a little facetious, uh, Jory, but is does any of this have anything to do with where the expression "working for peanuts" came from? Oh yeah, I don't know. That's that's funny. Of course, that's like a, I guess an American phrase. It probably would have to do with, um, or at least I assume it's an American phrase. I haven't checked in with any British people about it. I would assume it would have to do with the um, with the you know the kind of um, bad reputation, or you know, that peanuts had, like in the 19th century. Of, of course, also I don't know, like when this term came into use, but I'm just speculating that maybe because peanuts kind of had this reputation as like um, as a food for what well, was a food for 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 enslaved people or for like the lower class. Uh, so there came to be a kind of like dismissive relationship to to peanuts themselves. A poor man's caviar. Yeah, something like that, right? There's a the this this idea about like the accessibility of the peanut and how it was, um, you know, just related to. I mean, actually, because like in the 19th century, it was like, you know, there were enslaved people or recently enslaved people, so black people, and then who were who are mostly growing and eating peanuts, and then later, as it becomes more um, commercialized. It's actually like Italian immigrants who are selling it like on the streets of New York. So these are also associations with a kind of underclass, you know. What um, this whole idea that that peanuts changed the world in in what way did peanuts really change the world? Well, I mean the. That's a you know that's a big question of course you know how do how does any particular one thing ever change the world explicitly of course it was um you know it's a, it's a, it's an American transplant to, to the old world Africa uh, and it became a huge part of uh, of the economy so in Senegal it became a huge part of the economy it um, it facilitated any number of these labor practices it became the, the pretext by which the French expanded their their power in this particular part of West Africa, and then from 
from Senegal, they moved out to the rest of, of, of West Africa. So, um, you know, and then in Europe, of course, also it became, um, you know, well used in, in, in industry, in the soap industry, later in, in margarine, actually. So there, there are any number of, of intersections for the peanut. And then, of course, in the United States, it was, you know, grown widely um, after the the but you know after the expansion of the boll weevil the cotton boll weevil and to 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 kind of restore the land and i don't know if this would have come up or or if this would be appropriate in your book but where did peanut butter come from yeah that doesn't come up in my book it's funny you know of course i don't i don't i actually don't talk i know that in america there's this whole story about um it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, who who's the person in it's a, in Michigan also no the anyway is it Kellogg I, anyway I'm just speculating <laughs> I know he has there's a whole sort of story about like the popularization of peanut butter and the in the United States and why it became um, kind of such a huge part of our diet in uh, in across West Africa of course people do use peanut butter they don't eat it in the same way that um, we do in the United States, like you will, you will, you'll rarely find it on like a piece of bread, <laughs> but more it's well used in, in sauces. So like, um, like in Senegal, there's a, a dish called mafe and it's made with peanut butter and meat and I think tomatoes and some vegetables and lots of spices and you eat it over rice. So um, there's definitely, um, you know, the same sort of, culinary um, sort of influences. Well, this is, um, this is fascinating. The um, name of the book, again, is uh, Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. Um, was the translocation of peanuts... Um, connected in any way to conquest and or liberation in Senegal? The translocation of peanuts, meaning like its movement from from South America to, yeah. to Africa? Would you yeah. Um, the, is it related to the conquest of Senegal? Huh. That's a good question. Well, I don't know specifically. Again, so the peanut came from South America, but our best sort of guess is that the peanut was picked up, you know, so like even in the, after Columbus's first voyages, you know, it's possible that Columbus saw a thing that might have been the peanut because he was describing all types of, um, all types of things that he was seeing in like the markets there and the, in fields, uh, and then it later um, moved, so I mean, and in a way that's, it's, the kind of project of Columbus and the people who came after him um, wasn't sort of distinct from their exploration, so-called, of, of the Americas. It wasn't particularly distinct from an exploration also of the West African coast, which, um, you know, even Columbus had, had sailed to West Africa before um, deciding to, to sail across the ocean, you know. So there were already, um, especially like Portuguese and, and Spanish settlers in, in West Africa. Uh, 
I don't know if we could say that they were trying to conquer West Africa at that time, right? Like so in the in the 15th century when they were first first setting sail there, but they were just looking for useful objects of trade, right? And that those useful objects of trade ended up being mostly slaves. But even during the transatlantic slave trade, um Slavers in slave ships were carrying lots of different objects. There were, you know, not, people are not objects, but they were carrying, you know, still also like maybe peanuts for, for, for provisions, but also, you know, objects of commerce like, like, um, like timber, maybe like hides for leather, maybe um, gold, of course, ivory, things like that. So it could be that when the these initial sort of Portuguese and Spanish settlers brought the peanut to West Africa, they just wanted to cultivate it, um, you know, in a general way. Uh, it was only later that this kind of um, discovery of of how useful the, uh, the that peanut oil was provided like this. Um, Provided this this impetus for especially the French, but at first the British to to try to get peanut oil on a large scale. Well, in your book, you talk about slavery, colonization, and the peanut. Um, which came first? Slavery, colonization, and the peanut. Well, I mean, slavery is as I as I've mentioned is. Um, is a part of many societies, or had been. Let's hope it's not still. Um, but it, it so slavery right, came first. But like slavery altered over time, right? Um, the system of enslavement, say like Africans had, uh, altered to kind of meet the needs of the transatlantic slave trade. Once the transatlantic slave trade was over for the um, Americans and, and British at the beginning of the 19th century, those mechanisms to create labor didn't stop, right? So, like that's happening, and then the you know their their the the peanut became one of the sort of um, destinations for for that labor. So they're they're all related. So I guess slavery comes first, you know, then peanuts, then uh, then colonialism. And how much of an impact did peanuts have on attracting um, colonizers in the regions where peanuts were being grown? Well, um, the French. Well, I mean, there are a few different. Things so of the you know the French had been in the coastal areas of of, uh, of Senegal for uh, actually I don't remember some maybe like two hundred years before, um, and there hadn't been any kind of um, sort of appetite maybe from from the central state from France to expand into the interior anyway. So they weren't practicing what you know what. The British practice in the United States, which was settler colonialism, they were they were established on coastal areas or on islands, looking for things to trade, right? And then um, trying only to to protect their business interests. 
as the peanut um, kind of grows, starts growing in importance to the trade, to trade in general, there, um, there, you know, it's it's not the only reason, but it becomes one reason to to try to kind of subdue, as I would say, the the people in the interior, so that the, these areas can stay safe for their peanut production. But of course, it's not the only reason that the, the French are, are deciding to expand at that moment, but it becomes one, one part of it, one kind of like, it's an economic decision about protecting their business interests. Your book is, has been described as promising to transform our understanding of slavery and colonialism. How, how does that play out in your book? How does how does uh, how does how does, how does our understanding of um, slavery and colonialism how is our understanding altered by what you were able to discover and and uh, share in your book? Well, yeah, you know the publisher puts those big words on the book, you know, but but um, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that, you know, so, I mean, first of all, this other, that sort of other side of thinking about slavery, I think Americans are really American-centric, which is maybe normal. I don't have a kind of broad understanding about the larger context in which um, sort of slavery occurred and existed. For me, I wasn't interested necessarily in having, like, even though th this book may bring up the subject of uh kind of conversation about like who who's at fault for slavery whereas that's not really my question in, in the book you know um, I was interested in thinking about a kind of like common shared experience of subjugation right and what did that mean in different places um, and I happened to come across um, this this story which I had never um, which I had never thought of, you know. Even though I'm I'm Black American, and my all but of that's, my ancestors but that's an, were, were enslaved. But that's another thing that <laughs> that I want to ask you, Jory, is um, were you able to uncover and and share some things that just hadn't been written about before? We're sharing things that I mean. I mean, so have you added theory, a new chapter to the to the history of slavery? Uh, I mean, I don't know if I would be so bold as to add a new chapter in history of slavery, but I'm just trying in this book to uncover some of some stories of 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 the experience of in, of enslavement on the continent and for in in. In, in a context that doesn't really have anything to do with the transatlantic slave trade, but it's still about uh, our, our sort of global capitalist economy, right? Yeah. So the people are enslaved uh, in in Africa and still participating in a kind of global economy. Uh, and and I wanted to um, think about that, if that makes sense. So that that's sort of my that was my goal in kind of writing the book. Well, that makes too. sense. Jory, <laughs> what's what's next for Jory Lewis? Oh, what's next? Um, well, I'm Is there another book in the works? 
Uh, maybe. I haven't decided <laughs> what my next subject will be. This book took a lot of time and it was a, a lot of research. So I, I, I'm looking forward to taking a little bit of time off and then getting back to some other projects. Well, let me uh, let me do this. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. But, Jory, where can people find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Um, do you have a website that you could share? Yeah, I have a website. It's just my name, uh, you know, com. And I share a few stories here and there <laughs> on that site. Well, Jory. Or on Twitter or Instagram. Same thing, at Jory Lewis. It's just a, I was lucky enough because my name's so unusual to always get the right handle. <laughs> the um, name of the book is Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history by award-winning journalist Jory Lewis. Jory, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners uh, this morning, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Take care. Thank you. Again, uh, it was Jory Lewis, uh, award-winning journalist, and um, the book is Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. And uh, we're going to um, we're going to have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Radio for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Summer Program.com The Tom Summer Program.com From the Tom
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball, or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. 
But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Milestones are never really recognized right away. It takes uh, oh, 50, 60 years before people realize what an achievement it is. Like, um, take for instance tobacco and uh, the discovery of tobacco. It was discovered by Sir Walter Raleigh, you know, he, and he sent it over to England from the colonies. And uh, it seems to me the uses of tobacco aren't obvious right off the bat, you know. And I imagine a phone conversation between Sir Walter Raleigh and the head of the West Indies Company in, in England uh, explaining about the shipment of tobacco that he had just sent over. I, I think it would go something like this. Yeah, who, who is it, Mary? Sir Walter Raleigh from the colony. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, put him on, will you? Uh, uh, Harry? Yeah, you want to pick up the extension? It's, uh, it's Nutty Wall again. <laughs> Hi, hi, Walt, baby. How are you, guy? Uh, how's, how's everything going? I think things are fine here, Walt. D- did we get the what? The, uh, the boatload of turkeys. Yeah, they, they arrived fine, Walt. Uh-huh. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they're still here, Walt. Uh, they're, they're wandering all over London, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. See, that's, uh, that's an American holiday, Walt. Uh-huh. <laughs> What, what is it this time, Walt? You, you got another winner for us, uh, do you? <laughs> tobacco. <laughs> What's tobacco, Walt? It, it's a kind of leaf. And you bought 80 tons of it. <laughs> uh, let me get this straight now, Walt. You, you bought 80 tons of leaves? Uh, this may come as kind of a surprise to you, Walt, but uh, uh, come fall in England here, we're kind of up to our... Uh... It, it isn't that kind of leap. Uh, but what is it, a, a special food of some kind, is it, Walt? Not exactly. It has a lot of different uses. Uh, like, what are some of the uses, Walt? Are, are you saying snuff, Walt? What's, what's snuff? You, you take a pinch of tobacco. <laughs> and you shove it up your nose. <laughs> and it makes you sneeze, huh? <laughs> I, uh, I imagine it would, Walt, yeah. 
Gee, uh, uh, Goldenrod seems to do it pretty well over here. Right? <laughs> it, it has some other uses, though. You, you can chew it <laughs> or put it in a pipe or, or you can shred it up and put it on a piece of paper and roll it up. <laughs> don't, don't tell me, Walt. Don't, don't tell me. <laughs> you, you stick it in your ear, right, Walt? <laughs> All, all between your lips. Well, uh, <laughs> then, then what do you do to it? Well, <laughs> you set fire to it, Walla. <laughs> then, then what do you do, Walt? You inhale the smoke. Uh, <laughs> You know, Walt, it seems offhand like you can stand in front of your fireplace and have the same thing going for you, you know? <laughs> See, Walt, uh, we've been a little worried about you, you know. <laughs> Ever since you put your, your, your cape down over that mud, you know? <laughs> See, Walt, I, I think you're going to have kind of a tough time uh, uh, selling people on sticking burning leaves in their mouth. <laughs> it's going very big over there, is it? What's the matter, Walt? You spilt your what? Your coffee. What's, what's coffee, Walt? <laughs> that's, that's a drink you make out of beans, huh? <laughs> that, that's going over very big there, too, is it? But a lot of people have the coffee right after their first cigarette in the morning, huh? Is that what you call a burning leaves, Walt? Cigarettes? Uh-huh. I'll tell you what, Walt. Why don't you send us a boatload of those beans, too? If you can talk people into putting those burning leaves in their mouth, they gotta go for those beans, Walt. Right. And listen, Walt. Don't call us, we'll call you. Right, Walt. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.